if you bloggers self-organize and attach yourself like leeches to specific issues, corporations, organizations, challenges, whatever, you will be the intelligence minutemen of this century. There aren't enough guns to kill us all, and Halliburton can't build the jails fast enough to keep us down. Rakers is a board member for NARTH, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, a group that says it helps people with, quote, unwanted homosexual attractions. But Lucian also says for the trip to Madrid and London, he was to give Rakers what Lucian called sexual massages every day. He basically got excited. That was the whole case. So he wanted you to touch him? Well, yeah. This model says the bra with straps tied to plastic pots and a water hose with seedlings acting as a belt adds a contemporary touch. The bra fits much better than it looks. Bradley Byrne was a Democrat. Now he's a Republican. On the school board, Byrne supported teaching evolution, said evolution best explains the origin of life, even recently said the Bible is only partially true. Tuesday, May 18th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Our co-host, David Oz. Howdy there, little partners. Oh, David, I tell you, <laughs> how, about, how about what they're doing to that poor man, Bradley Byrne? Is that who that was? Yeah. In, in your opening. Uh -huh. Yeah, in the opening. Here's yeah. a guy that was, I guess, a Democrat at one point. And, and you know, in the South, all the everybody was a Democrat, and most of the conservatives were Democrats. There wasn't even much of a Republican faction there until Reagan, right? So yeah, who knows yeah. when this guy started. So let me tell the well, story. Nixon and the Southern strategy, but uh, let's go on. Yeah, and the Southern strategy that won. Okay, yeah. so this is the guy that's being pillared. Because at some point, sitting on the school board, he allowed the theory of evolution to be taught, right? He, he allowed it all by himself? Well, no, he was just part he probably of the majority. He didn't come up with it, did he? No, he didn't come up with the theory of evolution. That was a guy named Charles Darwin, ah. who never, ever lived in Alabama. And if he was alive today, would not go back. You know, would not start a bad, a, a bad trend. Mm. First of all, I can't believe that people are still fighting over Evolution versus creationism. I mean, they've got to the point down there where they're teaching them both as science side by side. Well, he only believes part of the Bible. Well, yeah, the part that says be compassionate, be good to people, well, don't murder. You know, there's, well, I think, as I recall, there's a lot of actually pretty good advice in there. Okay, so this, this pack has gone yeah. on, on, we heard part of it, has gone on, on the airwaves in Alabama accusing mm -hmm. this guy of supporting uh, evolution in the schools and saying part of the Bible isn't true. The candidate, Bradley Byrne, responded with a lengthy press release vehemently defending his belief in creationism and the infallible truth of the Bible. Wow. Quote, as a Christian and as a public servant, I have never wavered in my belief that this world and everything in it is a masterpiece created by the hands of God, he said. As a member of the Alabama Board of Education, the record clearly shows that I fought to ensure the teaching of creationism in our school textbooks. Those who attack me have distorted, twisted, and misrepresented my comments and are spewing utter lies to the people of this state. He went on, I believe the Bible is the word of God and that every single word of it is true. My faith is at the center of my life and my belief in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord guides my every action. Now, here's, here's where it goes. The group behind the ads uh, attacking Byrne uh, and his credentials is then called True Republican PAC. Interestingly, as the Montgomery Advertiser reported last month, the PAC has gotten most of its money from the teachers' union. 
Oh, wait, wait, or more wait, accurately, wait, wait, wait. from a collection of other PACs heavily funded by the union, according to the advertisers, uh, the advertisers, that's, that's the newspaper, yeah. members of the Alabama Education Association have a beef with Byrne for his past attempts to ban the employees of two-year colleges from serving in the state legislature. So Let's, he's dissing community yeah. colleges. Yeah. In return, they're putting money behind uh, the pack that's that's after him because he he what he did is he allowed evolution, you know, Darwinism and creationism. He to made be a deal, and he's made a compromise. Yeah, it's a deep Co- compromise. compromise com- in the deep South. Yeah. Compromise doesn't work. And as I've said, yeah. you know, he believes that the Bible is infallible, you know, it is absolutely inerrant, as they call it, right? Which is real infallible Pope talk. Well, I don't know, man, my translation has got some real real wording problems there. That's the problem. Which Bible are we talking about? Are we talking about the King James Bible, the great, the great King James Bible? Are we talking about the Mel Gibson Bible? Are we talking about the Comics <laughs> Illustrated Bible? Revenge, one oath. Yes, or are we talking two. about the Backwards Bible for Blind Satanists? There I mean, there's go. all... Which one of those? I, we don't know. So yeah. if, if they're all inerrant and they're all translated differently, we've got a problem here. Well, what I liked from a Buddhist perspective here was, you know, the very opening of his statement, which is every, the, the entire world, the universe, and everything in it is a masterpiece. Is a masterpiece. I, I'm with that. And you know what? The weird thing is, we make it up in our brains all the time because it's not actually here at all. If I could put my hand through this, my I world, would. You would. You know, I would. Sure, but we can't do that. But it's absolutely true. There's nothing here but atoms, and they are completely without any weight or substance. And and. Obviously, somebody set all of something set all of that in motion. Yeah, there is. What you know, do you suppose it was? You know, these people, these creationists, hijacked a perfectly good term called intelligent design, which in in the in, you know in the academic community now represents a whole theory on search for pattern using information theory. It has nothing to do with Sarah Palin saying, I saw a baby's footprint in a dinosaur footprint, so dinosaurs and babies frolic together. No, it has to do with the fact that you can fa- you can set up a certain kind of sieve through which you put you know, facts and information to find out if actually there is pattern. Here's the thing. Evolution and creationism are are apples and oranges. They're you know, pomegranates and peanuts. They have nothing to do they with like one Papa, another. Papa, what's it? Pomegranates and peanuts. Pomegranates and peanuts. The, it, it, uh, evolution is about how animals, generally speaking, and adapt. you can apply this to vegetables, how they adapt and change over millennia of years, very slowly and genetically, yeah. all of this happens. It has nothing to do with how the universe was created. Nothing at all. But now the radical uh, um, Darwinists like Dawkins, the atheists, say, yes, everything was put together, including basically the nothingness, through evolution. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I have I have trouble with that. Okay. I, I think I see, you know, down there in the primeval soup, there's these there's these sweet little oxygen atoms and these sweet little hydrogen atoms and they're just snuggly wuggling together and pop suddenly they're water. No, you know, now I realize Hi, honey, I'm wet. How are you? I'm wet too. Hey Now I realize what they were serving me at Loman Elementary School in the cafeteria. Primeval soup. White flight in the other direction? Yep. America's suburbs are now more likely to be home to minorities, the poor, and a rapidly growing older population, as many younger, educated whites move to cities for jobs and shorter commutes. Ten states, led by Arizona, I'm 
I'm suspicious of any trend led by Arizona, surpassed the nation in a cultural generation gap in which the senior populations are disproportionately white and children are mostly minority. This gap is pronounced in suburbs of fast-growing areas in the Southwest, including Florida, California, Nevada, and Texas, where everybody's crazy. Suburbs still tilt white, but for the first time, a majority of all racial and ethnic groups in large metro areas live outside the city. This is so, I mean, this is so not what was happening for so long. Remember, remember, all the whites were running out to the suburbs, and that's where all the mega churches were, and we don't have to deal with all those not-me's. And it turns out that their children are turning around and running back to the city where the high-tech jobs may be at some point, we guess and hope. Suburban Asians and Hispanics already have topped 50% in 2000, and blacks joined them by 2008, rising from 43% in those eight years. The suburbs now have the largest poor population in the country. They are home to the vast majority of baby boomers age 55 to 64, a fast-growing group that will strain social services after the first wave of boomers turn 65 next year. Just think. I'm going to be straining social services someday. It makes me feel so guilty. A new image of urban America is in the making, said William H. Fry, a demographer at Brookings, who co-wrote the report. What used to be white flight to the suburbs is turning into bright flight to cities that have become magnets for aspiring young adults who see access to knowledge-based jobs, public transportation, and and a new city ambience as an attraction. Yeah, right. These are not people that are running out to the suburbs so that they can be part of 14,000 people that gather at a megachurch every Sunday. And, you know, they want something. Well, what we said, the millennials are more spiritual and less religious, but also the millennials are vastly underemployed. So I'm really not sure what's waiting for them in the city. At least they want to suffer there with friends in a much more hip environment. Calling 2010 the decade of reckoning, the report urges policymakers to shed outdated notions of America's cities and suburbs and work quickly to address the coming problems caused by the dramatic shifts in population. Think they will? Um, I'm actually, you know, optimistic. I think the Obama administration is, is sensitive enough to know that this is going on. And of course, the suburbs were very helpful in his in his election, and he certainly doesn't want to lose anybody out there come 2010 and 2012. Well, among the recommendations of the Brookings Institution suggest they're kind of a left-leaning but nonpartisan group. They want affordable housing and social services for older people in the suburbs, better transit systems to link cities and suburbs, and a new federal office of new Americans to serve the education and citizenship needs of the rapidly growing immigrant community. Here's some other findings, by the way, from this very interesting study. About 83% of the U.S. population growth since 2000, 80% was minority. Part of a trend that will see minorities become the majority by mid-century. This is probably one reason why the teabaggers are going so crazy. You take a look at a gathering of teabaggers, and besides the fact that they're older and, and fairly, you know, gobsmacked. You know, they have the days in their eyes. That's the government. It's the big government. They're not very diverse. Not a lot of brothers and sisters there, you know. Not a lot of La Raza at the teabag gatherings. Uh, Across all metro areas, the majority of the child population is now non-white. So we have suburbs filling up with poor minority children. Hmm. 
The suburban poor grew by 25% between 1999 and 2008. That's only nine years. Five times the growth rate of the poor in the city. So five times more people are going poor in the suburbs. So this this is amazing. City residents are more likely to live in deep poverty, while a higher share of suburban residents have incomes just below the poverty line. Yeah, like there's a great big difference. For the first time in several decades, the population is growing at a faster rate than households. which That's due to delays in marriage, divorce, and births, as well as longer lifespans. People living alone and non-married couple families are among the fastest growing in the suburbs. Wow. Non-married couples. The suburbs. Everybody's living in sin. Time for another episode of... Reaming the President a New Perspective. The Obama administration will seek a law allowing investigators to interrogate terrorism suspects without informing them of their rights, as Attorney General Eric H. Holder Jr. flatly asserted that the defendant in the Times Square bombing attempt was trained by the Taliban in Pakistan. By the way, there is now... There's no doubt about that, okay? Mr. Holder proposed carving out a brand new exemption to the Miranda rights established in a landmark 1966 Supreme Court ruling. It generally forbids prosecutors from using as evidence statements made before suspects have been warned that they have a right to remain silent and to consult a lawyer. He said interrogators needed greater flexibility to question terrorism suspects than is provided by existing exceptions. We're now dealing with international terrorists, Holder said. And I think that we have to think about perhaps modifying the rules that interrogators have and somehow coming up with something that is flexible and is more consistent with the threat that we now face. The conclusion that Mr. Shahzad was involved in an international plot appeared to come from investigations that began after his arrest and interrogation, including inquiries into his links with the Taliban in Pakistan. But even before the attempted Times Square attack, the administration had been stretching the traditional limits of how long suspects may be questioned without being warned of their rights. After the attempted bombing of a Detroit-bound jet on December 25th, that was last year, for example, the, the FBI questioned Mr. Shahzad for three or four hours before delivering a Miranda warning. In both cases, the administration relied on an exception to Miranda for immediate threats to public safety. That exception was established by the Supreme Court in a 1984 case in which a police officer asked a suspect at the time of his arrest and before reading him his rights about where he had hidden a gun. The court deemed the defendant's answer in the gun admissible as evidence against him. Dave. Well, yes. I mean, is that uh, not not to put a too fine a point on it? It was admitted as evidence. Yes, yes. The rule of law, rule of law. Well, look, uh, as I say, uh, Obama may not have been a, a soldier, so he may be cowed by people in military uniforms with all the medals. But he was, you know, he was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. He is a lawyer. This is about law. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he is dead. Wrong. Absolutely. And this has to do with not being, it's the same old thing. Don't allow the administration to be accused of being soft. On on, anything. On anything. Soft on anything. So, no. The guy, they caught the guy. Yeah. They caught the guy? The guy 
was happy about what he what he had done. He is happy to talk about it. They but read him his rights, and he continued to talk. You know, I mean, everybody is so used to that. It's the NYPD and all those television shows. You know, there it is. A it, it, we know that you stop a guy and you 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 read him his rights. That's why do we do that to establish something consistent in every city across this great big land of ours and to support so that every our- evil cop yeah. has to do this even Joe Arapaho or Arpaio whatever his name is down in Phoenix they all have to do this you know and its supports are are tremendously complicated and fine concern with civil liberties in this country our our law system is superb and this is chipping away at a very important point obama knows about it he should be ashamed of himself. He should turn around and do something. He's buying into this idea of terrorists, terrorists, whoever they are. Even American citizens don't have no rights. Hey, how about the guy that goes on campus, the University of Virginia, and kills 13 or 14 people with a gun? He's not a terrorist. Of course, he ended up dead, but he gets his rights. Somebody goes in and burns a house down. He's terrorizing the people he immolated, but he's not a terrorist. It's all. It it's all has to do with these these sleazy definitions of uh, you know who we're against. What's a terrorist? Well, a terrorist act is let's say setting a bomb in an airplane or Times Square or anywhere where it's going to hurt people. Right. People who want to you know there's plenty of armies you can join if you just want to set off bombs somewhere you can go do that. But there's another definition, which is attempted murder That's and conspiracy. Right. Yep. And read him his rights and take him to public court so we can learn about all this. The What's problem is we have this untenable empire stretched all across the world. And anybody that, you know, regrets it or works against it is an insurgent or a guerrilla or a terrorist. Here's the thing, man. <clears throat> Here's the thing. If you, if you make an exception in, in one case in this country... That exception then becomes written into the law, and it becomes then the law is accepted, accepted. Okay, the Bill of Rights is very clear: no law may be made, etc. Right? Yeah. We may argue about uh, aspects of it, but it's really quite clear in what it says: don't do. And one of the things it uh, it demands of us is that we respect the rights of individuals and don't assume they are guilty. And that, this is American. It's crazy. It's novel. Uh, they may not like it in Spain or, or Czechoslovakia. They may or do Alabama. It, or Alabama. They may do it differently there. But that's what's in the Constitution. And Mr. Holder, there are no exceptions. No, read my lips, exceptions. More news on the recovery that isn't. Yes, it, it appears that the unemployment crisis continues to stymie this so-called full economic recovery, with ripple effects from credit card delinquencies and rising food stamp participation causing hardships for millions of Americans, according to the latest update of the Huffington Post's Real Misery Index, which is inflation added to unemployment. The index for March-April 2010 was 33.1, a slight increase from 33 in February, representing another new high in the 26 years going back to 1984, when, it was, when this misery index was initiated by the HuffPost. 
Though there have been some encouraging signs from higher housing prices, which have an inverse relationship to the index, to declining home equity uh, you know, d- delinquencies, the jobless numbers continue to increase the misery. Uh, though the real misery index has increased 16% from March 2009 to April 2010, the stock market has increased 56% that period, reflecting an alarming discrepancy between the two metrics. Well, you know, the stock market is encouraged by unemployment. And I asked an economist once, why? I said, well, you see, if you, the closer you get towards full employment, the more uh, inflation you get because more people have money to buy goods and, and stocks then are devalued by the inflation. So the more the misery, the better the stock market. And it seems to be working out. Okay, Lynn Riasser, the incoming president of the National Association of Business Economists, calls it a two-tier economy with those who are employed doing better and rising consumer confidence while at the same time the unemployed suffer. The misery index. We're going to keep a nice close eye on it. Governments, your friends, you see That's what I have to say, or they will bury me Don't you try to criticize And don't you ever try to talk about their lies I don't know what you've been told But last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean And disagree and not have to face the guillotine But if it's your head in the basket Then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution Patriot Act is the riot act with the PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. King and his army wing, they are hell-bent on the conquest Our enemies on bended knees, they're gonna see it always soon Because the freedom that they steal from us, they try to export overseas And now our former enemies are free to live a life of tyranny the same as you or me And it's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime, whoa If you heard that place is gonna Guilty or not, because you stick them in a cell and they are soon forgotten And they're out of sight and out of mind and out of luck But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution
Before you choose the side to fight Forget about who's wrong or right If you like your neck, you best as heck start Rooting for the winner This brave new world is knocking at your door And you better let it in The Constitution's evolution never made a contribution To the revolutionary man It's a crime your mind and it's a crime oh, don't say the word cause if you heard that blade is gonna fall All those talking heads on television, you know, the nerdy guys wearing the bow ties who call themselves economists and keep talking about the fact that they see a light at the end of the tunnel, that we've reached the bottom, that the stock market is on the way. All of this boosterism, of course, doesn't take into consideration that the housing market, which started it all, remains a disaster area. Currently, about 7 million homeowners are behind on their mortgages, and that number is only getting worse. Banks, with the help of the government, are offering some relief to homeowners who've lost jobs and just can't meet the payments, but this is a small slice of this pie of misery. But there's a growing number who can't pay but are simply walking away from houses that are now worth as little as half of what they paid for them. It's called a strategic default. Once again, there's that military, you know, metaphor coming into the economic arena. Uh, what was it? The European banks that gave a trillion dollars to the Greeks uh, said this was a shock and awe moment. Well, now people are defaulting on their mortgages as a strategic default. People who have done the math and decided making those monthly payments is just throwing money away. Well, well, they're... They're just simply leaving. Uh, they, they can't pay. And they're simply walking away. It's, the, the strategic default is like they leave the mortgage holders, the banks, as zookeepers of an ever-growing parade of white elephants. That should, they should have a parade of those white elephants in D.C., down Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, in front of all the legislators who are talking about the end of the R when they should be talking about the beginning of the big D. Okay. In the past year, it's estimated that at least a million Americans who can afford to stay in their homes, can afford to stay in their homes, simply walked away. This is an issue of, of character and ethics. You don't find that being taught much in the schools today. Not much time for them. We got to learn, you know, how to do important things uh, like flip hamburgers and stand in line. Among, among these people who are making these moral decisions, there's this guy named uh, Chris Diener and his wife, Dana, of Sun City, Arizona. 16 out of the 44 houses on the Diener Street have been foreclosed uh, over the last uh, year, okay? So uh, he's number 17 because he's decided that he's just going to walk. Uh, he's an auditor for a local university, and he bought his three-bedroom house in 2006 for $262,000. He thought that he had a bargain, right? 
Okay, but you know, first-time home buyers, you don't know houses are overvalued. You just don't know we need to get in there before it keeps going up and up and up, he explained. Well, he should have thought about that, huh? But then the balloon burst. So how much does he think he could get for his $262,000 house today? Right now, about $142,000, Diener said. Big drop, over 43%. Yeah, well, he's an auditor. He was able to figure that out. So the university has an auditor who's decided to walk out on a mortgage payment, a loan he made in good faith that he can afford to execute because he just wants to walk. Diener and his house were, as they say, underwater with a mortgage about a quarter of a million dollars on a home worth less than 150000 So he thinks he has a very expensive lemon. No, the house is not a lemon. His character is the lemon. He says that, uh, you know, he's tried to talk his bank into renegotiating his mortgage, but because he earns enough to keep paying, the bank said no deal. Why am I not surprised? He says, they refused to. They said it was going to affect my credit and they were going to take my house. And I pretty much said, go for it. That's just kind of one variation of just do it. Diener said he could afford to stay in his house, but he chose not to. He's walking away. He says, that lemon of a house, you know, is now the bank's problem. Because Diener, like many Americans, only made a 10% down payment on his home, taking a hike is a lot easier. By law in Arizona and nine other states, the bank cannot go after any, get this, cannot go after any of his other assets, but his credit rating will suffer for seven years, and he doesn't seem to care. Asked if he doesn't feel a twinge of guilt, Diener said, no, especially after dealing with my lender, trying to contact them. No, none at all. Oh, my God. Well, Peter, you know, earlier in this month of May, uh, we did not acknowledge the 100th birthday of Norman Corwin. Norman, I must say, is almost the inventor of radio drama, starting back in 1941 with a series on CBS called 13 by Corwin, and then another 13 by Corwin. Every week he would write one of these radio shows. And he was, I first read my first radio script Uh, a wonderful story called The Odyssey of Runyon Jones, written by Norman Corwin, about a little boy who had lost his dog and had to go to dog heaven to find it. And I read that, and I said, I want to be a radio actor. And I was like 12, you know. So it was a great thrill meeting uh, uh, Norman. And down there in L.A., Phil uh, Proctor, our partner, and his wife Melinda went to his 100th birthday party. An, An amazing record. He met everybody in Hollywood and worked with every major star. He met every major world leader, the presidents, everybody in his lifetime. And if you shake hands with Norman Corwin, you can shake hands with all those people too. So just to remember him, there's a tiny bit of his voice in this scene. This is a scene from Empire of the Air, which is the epic saga of FM radio. And in 1927 is when we're going to join this epic. Uh, Graham McNamee will uh, talk about Lindbergh's arrival. And then you'll hear Major Armstrong and his wife becoming aware that radio is on everywhere and everyone everywhere is listening to Amos and Andy at the same time simultaneously. And then you'll hear Norman talking about what the radio is before the radio just becomes mouthwash. This is Graham McNamee, 
speaking to you from our nation's capital, where upwards of 150,000 cheering Americans are gathered to hear President Coolidge award the Distinguished Flying Cross to the handsome young aviator, Charles Lindbergh. This is the largest network broadcast in the history of radio, linking 50 stations in 24 states, coast to coast. Over 12,000 miles of telephone wire. NBC estimates today's audience to be at least 30 million people from New York City to Seattle, Washington. And uh, here comes the motorcade up Pennsylvania Avenue. Here's the boy himself. Here's Lindy. There's, there's a little droop to his shoulders. He's very serious, tired out and awfully nice. Why don't you listen, Andy? Hey, is you gonna shut up or is I gonna kick you out of the courtroom? The more you talk, the worse off I is. Now, Brown, you can occasionally use the expression, I don't remember. Don't make it noticeable, but occasionally say, I don't remember. Uh -huh. Now, don't forget that. Now, what are you going to say? Now, don't forget that. What no, are you no. doing out you there, You don't Howard? remember. Oh, can you hear the right. show? Can I hear it? No, no. Come I outside a minute, remember. Minnie. What do you want? No, no, this is amazing. Turn off the radio and come out on the porch. Who is my lawyer? Turn it off? Yes, now, please. Just Minnie. Just say, I oh, don't right. remember. What could be so important that I have to tell? Listen. Amos and Andy. Yes, it's on everywhere, Minnie. It's on every radio in the neighborhood. Isn't it amazing, sweetheart? Everybody's listening to the radio, and they're all hearing the same thing. When people around here say the radio, they don't mean a cabinet, an electrical phenomenon, or a man in a studio. They refer to a pervading and somewhat godlike presence which has come into their lives and homes. Radio? Sure, it's got an audience. Monks in monasteries. Taxis and traffic jams. Solitary lightships tossing on stormy seas. Trappers, snowbound in winter. Baseball fans. College presidents. Babes in arms. And bedridden veterans. Surveys. Ratings. Historically, the facts about radio are distressingly simple. Because the programs who were there, people listened. Because they listened, the programs were there. Say, folks, if you all out there like this program, me and Andy hope that you let our sponsor know. Just ask for Pepsi Dem mouthwash next time you go shopping at your friendly neighborhood store. Mm-hmm. I was going to use some right now. Say, have you got some of that mouthwash they talk about on Amos and Andy? Pepsodent mouthwash. Yes, I'll have a bottle, yeah, too, please. Me, too. Yes, have me. Well, is that your last bottle of Pepsodent? How can I be your last bottle? Oh, Come on. Well, when are you going to get yeah. some more? Yeah. Sorry. 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 Yes, it's on order. Uh, sorry. Listen, can't somebody ask those boys to stop talking about this stuff? I can't keep a bottle on the shelf. I reported earlier that the Chinese government disappeared Zhao Jiesheng, a prominent human rights lawyer, right? 
They disappeared him for 13 months and brought him back a broken man, right? Well, it appears that he's vanished again. Associates said Mr. Gao failed to return to a Beijing apartment on April 20th after spending more than a week in Urumqi, the capital of the Xinjiang region in western China, where he had been visiting his father-in-law. Mr. Gao telephoned his father-in-law as his plane left Umqi, saying he would call upon his arrival in Beijing. That appeared to be his last contact with the outside world. He was obviously kidnapped by state thugs right off the airplane. You see, you don't even have to have bombs in your shoes to get picked off an airplane in China. Just being a human rights lawyer is enough to be classified as an enemy of the state. Others said they were sure that the government had again removed him from public view and that the authorities' earlier decision to allow him to resurface briefly had been a ploy to try to demonstrate to the outside world that he had not been mistreated. But the South China Morning Post, based in Hong Kong, which first reported Mr. Zhao's disappearance, said in an article that he had been quite outspoken during an April 6th interview in his Beijing apartment, despite the near certainty that security agents were recording his conversation. He had asked that details of his tr- treatment by the authorities while in captivity not be made public. If this is reported, he was quoted as saying, I'll disappear again. Prescient, huh? Well, how do I get China out of my life? I mean, I have real trouble with the way the American government is dealing with so-called terrorists. And I'll be talking about Mr. Obama's role in that subsequently. But China, flagrant state thugs, this is the worst. So how do I get China out of my life? If I, as I said before, no problem going into the grocery store. Now, not much from China here in the fresh food, you know. But go into a clothing store try to get a t-shirt, a pair of pants, a belt, anything that's not made in China, you have to look long and hard. Same with if you go into these, uh, you know, go into a, an equipment store, electronic equipment store. Why, look, this uh, color television HTV is only $3 because it was made in China by prisoners or something like it. I got to get China out of my life. I'm going to try and figure out a way to do it. And when I do, I'm going to hip you to it. Well, Peter, I found an obit. I always read the, the older I get, the more I read the obituary columns. I'm always happy when uh, somebody uh, surpasses me by many, many years. And uh, Doris E. Travis, the last of the Ziegfeld girls, oh my. passed away at the age of uh, 106. Boy, dancing in a chorus line is you know, good, for, good for long living. And here's just a little bit from Douglas Martin's wonderful uh, uh, obit of this lady. Mrs. Travis may have been the youngest Ziegfeld girl ever, having lied about her age to begin dancing at 14. She was part of a celebrated family of American stage performers known as the Seven Little Eatons. George Gershwin played on her family's piano, and Charles Lindbergh dropped by for tea, meaning Prohibition cocktails. After three years with the Ziegfeld Troupe, Mrs. Travis went on to perform in stage productions and silent films. In 1938, in Detroit, she opened the first Arthur Murray dance studio outside of New York, and she eventually owned 18 Murray Studios in Michigan. Mrs. Travis never stopped performing. In 2008, at age 104, 
She danced at the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS annual Easter benefit, something she started doing in 1998. And, and, and here's the other thing, okay? This woman had, had a love life. I mean, we're talking about Broadway, classic Broadway. In 1926, she joined the Hollywood Music Box Review. Okay. Ooh, that was a big, a hot big review. show pattern after the Follies, and while appearing in the show, she fell in love with the songwriter Nasio Herb Brown, who wrote "Singing in the Rain" oh my. with Arthur Freed. Uh, and it was she, Mrs. Travis, said she was the first to sing it, surrounded by a chorus of eight men. Mrs. Travis's relationship with Mr. Brown lasted intermittently for eight years, but never led to marriage. Mr. Brown himself married five other women, all told. All at the same time. Divorcing all, all of them. All of them. All now, at now, once. Now, if she started dancing at 14 and she was one of the early uh, Ziegfeld girls, then mm. she knew my cousin, the second or third cousin, Barney Bernard. Barney. Barney was in the early Ziegfeld Follies with Mae West and probably with Miss Travis. Barney uh, was Barney Bergman. Okay, and uh, he lived in Ironton, Ohio. My grandfather, Abe Bergman, uh, had a store, a men's store in Chillicothe, Ohio. And when Barney started getting real kind of like, uh, I want to dance, I want to sing, which is unheard of in a family, they said, we're going to send you off to Abe's store and you're going to learn a trade. What they didn't know is that my grandfather had been a minstrel in New York. He was an end man at Tony Pastor's in the Sitting Bull show. So during the day, Barney was taught the haberdashery business, and at night, Abe taught him to dance and play the bones. And then, <laughs> a year later, he gave him $50, which was a huge amount of money in 1906 or 1907, and said, go try it out, you know. And he ended up in the Ziegfeld Follies, and then he be then he went into silent film. He was a huge hit on Broadway. There was a show called Potash and Perlmutter after Ashley Montague's big hit book about two Jewish guys in the in the uh, garment trade, and he played Abe Potash, and it was it was a huge hit. There was a second hit called Partners Again, and then he died at the, in 1920 at an early age of a heart attack. So they knew each other. Who knows? They might have dated for all I know. Gosh, Pete, I, you come you you come by your show business career totally genetically. Recently, I checked my carbon footprint, and it looked like a Yeti. I realized that I had too much of what that dear man and old friend George Carlin called stuff. So, I went through the house and just threw out or gave away everything that wasn't essential to my life and my lifestyle. So, I have this one pile here left, and I know that some of it has to go. But what am I going to do without my George Foreman Panini press? Those gooey duck and arugula paninis kept me alive last year. And what about this beautiful mix set of horsehair bench brushes, cam action spruce cutters, and seam scrapers? I guess I'll just have to kiss eccentric cabinet making goodbye. I'm going to part with my collection of green crackle plates, blue pub glasses, chocolate breaking forks, the anodized ice cream bowls, and these galvanized wine coolers. Well, they mean fine dining to me. And can I go hunting with the guys without these goose nooses, robot duck decoys, and quiver magnets? I don't think so. Not if I want to bag my limit of feathers and fun and my body. My body is going to really miss the healing touch of this unscented oral glow oil, the tingling surprise of this wild yam balancing ointment, and the inside shiny bowl feeling after a swig of this cat's claw intestinal cleanser. Yeah, 
I want to live the less is more life, more or less. So I'm not going to broom this wonderful stuff. No, I'm going to keep it in a post-consumer, all-hemp, solar-powered, hypoallergenic storage unit and call it even with the environment. And I hang them on the grocery wall. Ha, 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 ha. Well, folks, what can I do for you today? Mr. Liverface, you're a butcher. You're up to your knees in fresh-killed meat every day. What's the best food for my dog? Give him what every dog loves to eat. Cat. Cat? <laughs> no, I'm serious. There's enough proteins and minerals in a teeny kitty's body to keep a big dog healthy and happy all day. And there's a full litter of kitties in every can of my Mr. Liverface dead cat dog food. Well, that's all right for our little doggy Ronnie, Mr. L. But what do we feed our cat? Dog. Not Ronnie. Not Ronnie, wife bait. But there's a full pound of ground pound hound in every can of Mr. Liverface dead dog cat food. We'll, we'll take one, one of each. You are one of each. Oh, dogs and cats, cats and dogs, your pets can eat them all. They run through my yard, I whop them with a stick, and, and I hang them on the grocery wall. I'm reading from USA Today. Sometimes I just love McNewspaper. You know, over the period that I've picked it up from time to time when I was on the speaking circuit and I was staying in all of those hotels, you know, with the atrium lobbies. There'd always be free copies of a newspaper under the door. So at those days, it was pretty conservative. I mean, considerably so. It was definitely a Bush supporter. But times have changed. They're turning towards the center, even slightly left, which means they'll probably, like Newsweek, soon be up for sale. Okay. Nationwide, about a third of first-year students in the years 2007 to 2008 had taken at least one remedial course, according to the U.S. Department of Education. At public two-year colleges, that number rises to about 42%. 42% of the people going into community colleges and a third of the people going into four-year uh, universities or colleges have to take remedial courses in basically reading and math. How did they graduate in the first place? Education observers worry that the vast number of students coming to college unprepared will pose a major roadblock to President Barack Obama's goal for the United States to once again lead the world in college degrees. Well, we may lead the world in college degrees. Most of them we will get over the Internet, along with becoming popes and bishops and cardinals in the Universal Life Church. In October, the Education Department reported that many states declare students to have grade-level mastery of reading and math when they don't. In a 2007 ACT National Curriculum Survey of college professors, 65% said their states poorly prepare students for college-level coursework. It's a scandal. It's a total scandal. The survey found that professors want students with... Um, stronger skills in specific areas, while high schools typically impart a less comprehensive understanding of a broad range of topics. I mean, I feel for the teachers and I feel for the administration. They are being brought students, many students who are not ready for school. They're not ready nutritionally. They're not ready emotionally. They're not ready socially. And they're being housed and warehoused and jailed. And the idea is get those people out as quickly as possible. And then they go on to college. 
The Obama administration is pushing states to adopt tougher standards, and governors and education leaders across the country are working together to propose a uniform set of common standards. A first draft was released in March, and a final proposal could come this summer. For others, the problem points to the need to develop alternative forms of job training for people who aren't academically inclined and are unlikely to finish college. They do it in England, you know. It's much more of a class society in a sense there. But if somebody really isn't set to go on to college and get a college education or is prepared to research and think and study and write and talk the way you you really should in college, well, there are other avenues that are just as productive. Many of them are jobs that pay a lot more than people are going to get when they come out of college, and, which is not a bad thing. And, you know, people that go into air conditioning repair can wake up one morning and say, I'm going back to college and look, I've got the money to do it. Okay, so we're telling kids you'll be a third class citizen if you don't go to college, said um, Marty Nemco, an education policy consultant and author. He says, and colleges are taking kids who in previous generations would have not gone to college. Nemco favors an apprenticeship program similar to those offered in Finland, Japan, and Germany. Yeah, but you know, being an apprentice, that's tough work. You really have to, you have to deliver right? You can't just sit around and get what they call social promotion. People get through high school. Social promotion basically means get him out of the 10th grade. I can't wait to get him out of my classroom and take his drugs and his knives and his pornography with him. Some students in remedial courses are older workers trying to jumpstart a new career. Well, that's, that's entirely different. But a sizable amount are recent graduates who performed well in high school. A 2008 study by the nonprofit Strong American Schools found that nearly four out of five remedial students had a high school GPA of three or higher. Excuse me, three is a B. B equals good. What's good about not being able to read or do math? Students who need remedial classes are also more likely to drop out, you think? Those taking any remedial reading, for example, had a 17% chance of completing a bachelor's degree, according to 2004 Education Department data. And if they happen to play basketball or football, they have no chance whatsoever of graduating. Well, Peter, I, here we are at the end of another show. I don't know how we do this. Wow. It sure is fun. But I got to throw another poem out. Uh, you throw all catch. Okay, here it comes. This is another presidential found poem called A Perfect Day. With W. I'm going to have lunch with Secretary of State Rice, talk a little business. Ms. Bush, talk a little business. We got a friend from South Texas here named Katherine Armstrong, take a little nap. I'm reading an Elmore Leonard book right now, knock off a little more Elmore Leonard this afternoon. Go fishing with my man Barney. I light dinner and head for the ball game. I get to bed about... 9.30 p.m., wake up about 5 a.m., so it's a perfect day. Yeah, and it's been a perfect show. Radio Free Oz in your ears. Uh, you want to go up to RadioFreeOz.com and kind of look around. It's a real pretty place. Okay, here's the Oz team. John Cumming, Ones and Zeros, Phil Fountain, all the beautiful... Tom Gedwillow, our webmaster, Dave Maloney, audio engineer, Superbo, Bill McIntyre, the producer over it all, David Osman, our co-host, and I'm your host, Peter Bergman. 
Stay with us for more Oz in Your Ears.